Welcome into the All Ball Podcast. At the NFL season, we're in the offseason. Not much to talk about here, but we have not touched base in the NBA since before the season when we did a preseason little preview and all of that. So we got a bunch to hammer home on as we come out of the All-Star break, as we start to ramp up into the second half of the season. Before we just discuss the NBA, though, we had some major stuff happen in the college basketball ranks. I just want to touch base a little bit about mainly not so much about what happened, but I think the reaction between it all with Juwan Howard and Greg Card, uh, the Wisconsin head coach, where, you know, I saw a lot of people trying to defend Juwan Howard. And I was watching that game live and the end of it and all of it and all everything that was going on with it. And I just found it very ridiculous that everybody was or a bunch of people were trying to defend Juwan Howard and his actions with this because, you know, it starts off with the game ending and the broadcast team making note that Juwan Howard wasn't really like he at first wasn't going to the handshake line. He was pretty adamant or just was avoiding that. And then he ended up going there pretty reluctantly. And you see him walk up there and walk pretty fast. You see him put, uh, pull off his mask and start to say something to uh, the Wisconsin head coach. And I believe it was I'll remember that as he alluded to or as as Juwan Howard said later in his press conference that he had said that to him, remembering that, you know, Greg Card had called the timeout with what is it like 22 seconds left? And, you know, he then says that and starts to walk past him with no intention, I think of stopping him. And Greg Card tries to grab him just, you know, a little tug on the, on the elbow there to stop him. So he can explain himself that he called the timeout because Juwan Howard was pressing him when he had backups in while Juwan Howard had his starters in, in a game that was, you know, 15 points. It was done at this point. And it was just ridiculous. Everybody's like, oh, you know, why do you call the timeout? Well, he called the timeout because he had backups in and he didn't want to put his guys on defense after that. Subsequently, after that, if they got stopped there and calling the timeout would reset the 10 second clock to get over half court. And the fact is, John Howard comes by and gets angry with him for calling the timeout when he's the one pressing him with starters with less than a minute left in a, in a blowout game. I just don't see any way that you could point this around and say that Greg Card was in the wrong and Juwan Howard was in the right because Juwan Howard started, he instigated by pressing the backups in a game that you were already down by double digits with less than a minute left. And then you get annoyed at a timeout because you were pressing. And then when you go and, you know, are reluctant to go to the handshake line and go there and try and instigate something by saying, I'll remember that. I'll remember the timeout. It's like, wait, you were the one that was pressing. And then when he tries to, you know, when Greg Card tries to explain himself and why he called the timeout, which was very, very reasonable for why he would want to do it, you would just try to brush by him. And in a non-threatening manner, he tried to, you know, explain himself and stop you from running past him. You start to get enraged at that. It just made no sense why anybody could find a way to, I think, get angry at, at Greg Card and back Juwan Howard in this instance. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see a lot of... Um... And honestly, you have to assume that most people online didn't see live either. Um, but yeah, I just think, you know, for Juwan in general, it's just been a really bad season for them, right? They're 14 and 11. This is a team that's, you know, made deep runs in the past. Um, and clearly they're not living up to expectations. You know, this is a guy, Juwan Howard, people are talking about, can he get an NBA job, you know, just a year ago? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm kind of thinking, is this guy even going to be back next year? So, yeah, I mean, it's not been his year. Not not to defend his actions at all. Just, you know, all I really have to add to it, just been a really terrible year for Michigan basketball. Um, and that probably contributed to it. There's There's been a couple of times and people are going through, you know, there was an incident at the Rutgers game. There was an incident with Maryland last year with Juwan Howard. And it's funny because you look at it and he's he's been that guy in the last minute of a game of a game, whether he's the losing team or the winning team, where he calls a timeout. 
So the thing mm. he got mad at was what, you know, he's been doing for his whole career or for, you know, in the history. Well, and it's not so much that like, I, I'm not saying like he should be fired. It is a fireable offense. I'm not saying, I'm not saying he needs to be fired. I just think it's ridiculous when anybody's trying to defend him and say, Greg Card was in the wrong for calling the timeout or for trying to stop him to explain himself why he was doing it. Yeah. You know, this happens in, um, in, uh, baseball a lot too i feel like the guys who get who get mad about someone breaking a you know a quote-unquote unwritten rule are pretty much always in the wrong mm-hmm. i think you could just trying to say so black and white where it's yeah. you know like it's like oh you did this without it just in a complete vacuum where you know we're not going to take into, into account any external factors it's not like greg Carr was trying to run an offense and trying to score points like he was trying to get over half court and run out the clock okay so with that done, let's head to the NBA. You wanted to talk about the slam dunk contest. Obviously, that was a bunch of news going around because, you know, it was a great night to start out with the skills challenge, then to three-point contest, and they kind of st- there was kind of a standstill there, and it, it draw a lot of people, drew a lot of people to, you know, criticize the whole the whole contest. So what would you want to talk about? Yeah, so I think I think like the obvious angle to take is the fact that it was just, you know, it was low quality, and, you know, you could say that the players in it weren't that good, but – one problem that I've had with the dunk contest for years is, is actually the scoring. So like, you know, you score it out of 10, but if you miss every single dunk, you get a you get six out of tens across the board, you get an automatic 30. Right. And then Juan Toscano Anderson throws it off the backboard and does a windmill, you know, one of the more underwhelming dunks you'll ever see in a dunk contest, he gets three eights and two sevens, right? 38. So basically what's the point of having it being able to be scored one through 10 hypothetically, if the the worst thing you can possibly do is rewarded with a 30 out of 10. And so the, the scoring just gets so skewed and it didn't really matter this year. You know, Obi Toppin deserved to win. He was the only one who met the standard of what a dunk contest participant should be, which is not exactly the highest praise, but he was, you know, he was at least at that level of like, yeah, this guy belongs in the dunk contest. He was doing good stuff, but I just have always had a problem with the scoring. I think it's part of the reason that you see controversies like the Aaron Gordon and Derek Jones or um, Aaron Gordon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know that one was a little less controversial because I think that could have gone either way. I think the Aaron Gordon one with Derek Jones is one that, People are like, oh, he deserved to win. But ultimately, yeah, it's so easy to get an eight or a nine. And so you're basically scoring on a scale of like zero to three rather than a scale of like one to 10 as it should be. No, that's fair. I do get why they do it because they don't want, you know, somebody, you know, bad, just bad. Yeah, they don't want people they to don't get want their them out of it. But I just, no, no, but it's also like you don't want them out of the car. You want to keep it as enticing as possible for the viewer, I think, throughout the entirety of it. So it's like, somebody doesn't get a dunk off and they get sixes and a 30 it's not like they're completely out of it as opposed to if you get like uh five five twos and you end up with 10 yeah i just uh you know this is kind of the difference between the nba and the nfl you know the nfl would never do something like that where like you you have a total failure and it's like here take more than half the points my my biggest issue like goes a little bit in hand with it was the you know it wasn't consistent. I felt like with the scoring, like Obi Toppin's first round one was not an eight. It was not like 40. It was, a, it was at least a 45, if not a 50. And I don't know, it was just like stuff like that, where it's inconsistent with the actual scoring. And obviously because you have five different judges, but across the board, it was like, you know, guys don't get a dunk and they get a 30. Obi Toppin had a really nice first dunk and he got a 40. I just, it's, that's it's where just I turned it was like a, around a 40. Save for the Levine and Gordon years, which I think was a three-year stretch 
because Levine did it twice. And then Gordon did it once with Levine and once with Adam. So that three-year stretch, I just think the event is dead. Um, a lot of that, you know, you could go all the way back to LeBron who never did the dunk contest and basically made it not cool for star players to participate in a dunk contest. Let's say in the eighties, Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins don't do the dunk contest. Then you don't see Vince Carter do the dunk contest. You don't see Kobe Bryant do the dunk contest. And I sort of think that a precedent was set with LeBron and this isn't an anti LeBron thing. It's just sort of an observation, but when he decides not to do it, this becomes like a scrub event. And there's really, there's really no like nice way to put it. it you, you don't do this event. If you're an actual all-star. You, I don't think like if I'm trying to think about, you know, probably Blake Griffin was the last, you know, actual all-star, like premier all-star that was yeah. in the dunk contest. Yeah. And like Levine now is an all-star, but you know, at that time he was not, uh, well, yeah, he was a nice player. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't an all-star. Blake Griffin Dwight was, doing, Howard was he, doing it. Yeah. Bl- um, Dwight Howard too. But, but yeah, but Griffin was, you know, more recent. And that was, I believe his rookie year when he was also an all-star. Um, and, and so, yeah, exactly. Like you said, it just nobody really does it anymore. And that's another reason why the three point shootout is a little more uh, entertaining because you're going to get Steph Curry. You're going to get, you know, Dame Lord. You're going to get all these guys, all these, you know, star players. And so that's another piece of it. I just, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Also, it's also like it's more, it's faster paced with the three point contest. It, the fact is, I mean, started out with the Cole Anthony one. And I liked, uh, like, I get the whole setting a stage, telling a story with it all with the Tims and wearing his dad's jersey. I have no issue with that. It just, you know, he shows all of this. And then we got to wait for him to put on the Tims on the sideline. Yeah, for he's a couple tying of the Tims tight. He's like dancing. You know, it's one of those things where if, if you enjoy, like, if it's good theater prior to the dunk, then it's acceptable. Like Blake Griffin when he brought in the choir and jumped over the car. That was pretty mm-hmm. sick. Um, but now on the other hand, you have Jalen Green putting an NFT on his neck and then taking it off but prior to dunking. I mean, what the hell is that, mm-hmm. right? It literally makes no sense. And um, and then, yeah, like you said, with the Cole Anthony thing, that was it's pretty just, bad. It's so, well. so standstill. And then when you look at the three-point contest, even if you have, like, a Luke Kennard – who's, you know, on the tier of an OB top and when it comes to just uh, an actual player, it's just fast paced. You have, you know, the announcers getting into it. You have, you know, Reggie Miller, I like every time he's like, gotta have this one, gotta have this one. I think the over under was set at like 20 and a half for this. And he probably slammed me over. It's like, they're getting into it and there's all this emotion, but then, you know, the dunk contest, they're they're showing Shaq courtside and Shaq just wants to get out of there at this point. And also the ruling is questionable. So they changed it from the shot clock to the, you have three dunk attempts, Mm -hmm. but it's so vague. What entails a dunk attempt? It's like, it's like, I was, I was talking about this with people from work. It's like, you know, an incomplete or a fumble pass, you know, in, in the NFL, if your quarterback, if his arms coming forward, you know, is it that, or if it's like an actual catch, like, you know, when we had the whole did Des catch it thing, it's kind of like there in the, in this gray area. Cause it's like the downward trajectory when he, if he's like, you know, his arms coming downwards with the ball, then it's right. considered an attempt. It's, it's so, yeah. It, it, there's so many nuances and so many different arbitrary things with the dunk contest, I think it just becomes too much. And when you add in the fact that it's not as fast paced, that's where it leads to, you know, the, it being the last event and it just kind of flopping compared to the other two. Yeah. Now, last thing, just quick statement before we move off of All-Star Weekend. I do have to say that I have enjoyed the change to like the Elam ending with the mm-hmm. target score. I do think that it allows players to turn up at the end of the game when I think at this point we just accept that it's not going to happen for the entirety like the Pro Bowl. 
Um, and what do you mean, I like the, that, oh, like the entirety is just like nobody gives a shit. You know, you would like to see guys try for the entire 48 minute stretch. Now we all know that's not going to happen. So they've added in this Elam ending where it's, you know, 24 plus the last score that you had at the end of the third. And that determines the winner. And I do like that change because I feel like the players care in that. I want to call it a fourth quarter, but it's almost not right. It's almost like a separate entity than a quarter, but um, yeah, I do. I do like that change. I really like it. I think the NBA does the best job when it comes to the all-star game. I think it's because, you know, basketball as a whole compared to like, if you played football or if you play baseball, it's like you can nonchalantly just play around. You still like Steph Curry like can pull up from half court, but he still has to make them. Like it's not so much as, Obviously, they're not going to be picking up at half court. I mean, they were doubling him a little bit. It kind of felt like, you know, that Kevin Durant video when he was in Rucker Park in like 2012 or whatever, where everybody's just throwing it. You ever seen that video? Mm-hmm. It was during a lot. Yeah. So it, was, it felt like that. But I just think the NBA, I think basketball is so suited to do that. And yeah, the Elam ending at the end. Look, I love, you know, the first couple of quarters when I just get to see them kind of just dunking and all of this. I don't think it needs to be a, a lockdown game and I don't expect them to do it. It looks a lot better, though than in the NFL when nobody gives a shit and they're just lollygagging because the NFL and football, if you do, it just feels so disingenuous or just so so much like a different sport as opposed to the NBA because you still have to have the insane shot making when it comes to, you know, the deep shots or just the, the cool dunks are still very cool. Right. And that's, as much as that's a credit to the NBA, it's also just a fact that basketball is safer than football. Yep, yep. Exactly. Okay, let's get to some NBA, some actual players and past this all-star break. We got one guy who, you know, appeared in his first all-star game this past this or last night, I should say, LaMelo Ball. And it got me thinking a couple of weeks ago when I or last week when I had seen that he was uh, going to be going to be there. I, I believe he was an alternate or uh, he came in as a, an alt, an injury alternate. Has enough time passed to start the conversation that the Warriors made a mistake passing on James Wiseman uh, or passing on LaMelo for James Wiseman? I think, I think yes and no. Um, I think yes, because it's clear that LaMelo is a really, really great player, a dynamic player, you know, a sort of unique guy, a clear all-star, but the reasons no is a few. One, who knows how he would mesh with the Golden State group. Now, when they drafted him, they thought Clay would be back for that season. So Clay missed another full season than expected, and you never know how he would have mixed in with all that. I also think Lamelo doesn't play the best defense. He's not even on the floor at the end of the fourth quarter all the time. So I think there still leaves a lot to be desired for a guy that he would be under a different spotlight. Him and Anthony Edwards would be under a way different spotlight and scrutiny if they were playing on a legitimate contender rather than getting the chance to sort of be the guy and make mistakes on a fringe playoff team. And then the other big thing is the fact that Wiseman's only played 39 games in his career. And I think for that reason, you can't say without a doubt that it's a huge mistake because we don't even know what Wiseman is. And when he was playing, this is when the Warriors were as bad as they've been in a decade. So we just don't even know what Wiseman is, frankly. And therefore, it's, it's hard for me to say confidently that they made a mistake for you know, all those reasons. I, I, think, I think I have to go that they've made a mistake. I think because of what I've seen with Lamelo, like you, yes, you don't know how exactly he would gel with Clay, Steph, and Draymond. But the way that I see him playing with the Hornets right now, I feel very confident that he would gel very well with them. The ability for him to, you know, just 
he's just not a selfish player when you watch him. He's not a guy that needs a lot of isolation. He's a guy that likes to move the ball like the Warriors do. He likes to free flow and just move around, move without the ball and just get the get the ball moving. And I, I just think that, you know, when you looked at the Warriors and they had the number two overall pick in 2020, that was the opportunity for them to either trade for an impact guy or draft somebody that could then bridge to the next, you know, run or stretch of dominance for this Warriors franchise after this core of Draymond, Steph, and Clay moved on, as well as help them contend. And that's exactly what LaMelo would have done. If you bring him in and you you bring him under Steph and Clay, given what we've seen from him now, I think the sky's the limit for the guy. I still that's think that he's a guy that could be been... a top 10 guy and top five guy, and I think he's on trajectory to be there. But you even put that with the organization of the Warriors with an offense that runs that they do and the, what I've seen from him, I think right now you have to say it's a mistake. This isn't about James Watson being a bust. This is so much that LaMelo is averaging 27 and seven and a half on 42% shooting from the field, 37 from three and 86% from the line. He's just been that guy this year. And I think that is just enough for me to say, given how I've seen him play with what the Warriors do, that it would have been, it would have been money. It would have been magic right there between the two. And if LaMelo is on the Warriors, I think they're the favorite to come out of the West right now. Yeah, well, they're still, I mean, they've got to be top two, obviously, between them and Phoenix. Um, he he definitely could have been what you said. You know, it's kind of like when the Celtics drafted Len Bias in 86, and the thought was that as Larry Bird and Mikel got older, he would step in and take the reins and take over. But, you know, he died, and Lamelo was drafted by the Hornets. So neither of those things actually happened. But again... I think Wiseman, you got to let him, you got to see him play. Who knows? He could be a guy like DeAndre Ayton, a, a very versatile big man. And then we're talking about how great it is that they have him and how it would have been overkill having so many guards. So I think it could have gone, you know, a number of different ways and we will see if it pans out. Now, on the other hand, you do notice that number two picks tend to be busts a lot of the time. I was looking up expected draft pick value the other night because we've seen a shift in the league where at first draft picks were undervalued and then they became overvalued. And now I believe that they're properly valued, especially when we're talking about late firsts. For example, when we talk about the Sixers and Nets and how Philadelphia parted with two first round picks. But if you assume that they're going to be in the twenties, it's not that big of a deal, but it's interesting how the first pick is obviously the most valuable. And then the third pick is notably more valuable than the second overall pick. It's just, uh, I'm not saying that you would rather have the third than the second, but it is a, you know, a notable anecdote that for the most part, second picks have been disappointing historically. That's, that's very interesting to, see, to hear. And I, yeah, I don't think, I mean, for me, I think about, you know, if the Knicks had the second overall pick instead of the third, they'd have John Moran instead of RJ Barrett. Yeah, I think obviously I, one case doesn't set the foundation or doesn't uh, write the book. I think I think you think about you think about that from a Knicks fan perspective. You probably think about Kevin Durant as well, yeah. who was second overall pick. But Sam Bowie was a second overall pick between Hakeem, Michael Jordan, um, Wiseman here in this case. Wasn't um, Darko Milicic the second overall yeah, pick? Yeah, it's a great. And I was going to say Hashim Thabit as well was between yeah. Blake Griffin and James Harden. So it, it, it's a, it's, it's a real thing. It's very it's very interesting to see. Now, with the with the Wiseman part of it, look, he can be DeAndre, and I think he's, you know, he's that he's still going to be a very solid player. But we've seen the wings are where you know championships have been won these past couple of years, and that's where Lamelo. He, yes, he's a point guard, but he's six seven. He's a guy that can play on the wing. He's a guy that you know 
attacks. He's somebody that I think you can rely upon. And I think he's on the trajectory to be a guy that can be a number one option on an NBA title team. So here's a, here's a question for you then because very similar. Um, what if the Suns had drafted Luka Doncic first, how good would they be? I think they would be the the top team in the West, no doubt about it. But they but they already are the top team in the West. I, I think you can I think you can debate whether you want to take them or the Warriors. I think right now they they might be, but I don't think if you're saying you know who's to win the title, I don't think it's a clear cut thing. I think if they have Luca there though, I think you can find because of you know the amount of big men that you can find in the league that can be contributors and they don't need to be these dominant guys. Yes, the Joel Embiid's, the Nikola Jokic's, those guys are. You know, you can't put a price, you can't put a value on those types of bigs. But, you know, when you talk about DeAndre Aiden, who's a very good player, there's a reason why the Suns haven't maxed him out. And I think they should, but I think it's one of those things where big men like a JaVale McGee, I'd be fine with them and a Luka Doncic as opposed to, you know, campaign and and DeAndre Aiden. But let's say that they have Luka Doncic, and now we're talking butterfly effect stuff, but would they have Chris Paul? Probably the, not. No, and, but then, and so, then you bring in somebody else. And, and what would it look like? Is there enough ball to go around? Mm-hmm. And this is sort of what I'm trying to hit on a little bit with the Lamelo thing. And I know that Lamelo is a willing passer, as is Steph Curry. So, you know, maybe it would work. But all of a sudden you have, if you're talking about Luca, Chris Paul, and Booker, there's probably not enough ball to go around. No, I think, and I think that's very fair. I just think with, you know, with where Lamelo's at and what the Warriors do with the ball when it comes to their how their offense is run, I think it would have been a seamless transition. I think they all would have made it work in part because I think, you know, the culture there, I think because, you know, every single guy there, it's not like Steph is a ball dominant guy. It's not like Clay's a ball dominant guy. It's not like Draymond's a ball dominant guy. The whole offense is run on movement and passing and all of that, as opposed to in your example with the Suns, Chris Paul needs to have the ball in his hands. Devin Booker is very good with the ball in his hands. Luca definitely needs the ball in his hands. And those are three ball dominant guys. And, We'll get into it when we'll we'll get into it right now when we talk about the Nets and the Sixers because I think this is it coincides with this because now we talk about yeah because it didn't work in Brooklyn with, with exactly exactly but that arguably admittedly now you could say that but at the same time I think we all kind of know that if if those guys had played together in the playoffs they played sixteen games together total so we say that it didn't work out because there wasn't enough ball to go around but is that even true? No, no, it would. I think I still think it would have worked because this team was this team was a Kevin Durant foot on the line away from you know going to beating the Bucks, the team that actually won the title, and And that was with one and a half. That was Kyrie leaving after Game Four. That was with Harden, who played you know four games and three. I mean, one of the games was like a minute, and then the other three was very, very much limited. So it was pretty much Kevin Durant and a bunch of role guys there. So I, I, yeah, I think you can say it was a failure, but that was because of external things, I think this team would have won this year as well as last year if they were all healthy. That's obviously something that you can't say. But now they made the trade, obviously, Ben Simmons going to the Nets with Andre Drummond and Seth Curry, James Harden going to the Sixers. Where do you have these teams in the East hierarchy right now? Because when you're looking at the whole standings of it, the East is very competitive right now. And obviously the Nets have been dealing with some injuries and dealing with you know Kyrie and his whole vaccination status. And they're now sitting you know, in the playing tournament and in the eighth spot in the East. I think, so we were talking about this before we started recording and I said, it's just near impossible to speculate about the Nets because A, Durant's injured. Now we all assume he's going to be back, but worth noting. Now we don't know if Ben Simmons, when he's going to play and how that's going to look. 
we think it'll look good, but you can't be too sure. And then Kyrie, maybe it's good that they're in eighth, right? Because if he can't play home games during the playoffs, you'd rather have him be on the road then. Because like in a game seven, you'd rather be on the road and, and have and have Kyrie than you're pretty much a non-existent home crowd in Brooklyn. So it, it, maybe that's a good thing. But for the Nets, I just, I just find it so difficult to project what they're going to be versus a team like the Bucks or the Bulls or the Heat, where you know a bit more what they're going to be. Now, their ceiling is higher, but their floor is clearly much, much lower. So it gets very difficult. So where would you put them if you had to rank out the top, the top, you know, four or five teams? We'll put Bulls, Heat, Bucks, Sixers, and Nets. Where, how would you rank them? Like, can Kyrie play home games? So I'm not saying like right now. I think when you're talking about come playoff time. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, for me, my whole estimate, I, I think the mandate's going to get lifted. I think there's too much question around it coming now. I mean, we're, we're both in the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, so just hearing, like you hear about a bunch of things, there's obviously all the news around it where, you know, you're hearing that and you're hearing Adam Silver come out and say, you know, the mandate's a little ridiculous and all this. It doesn't make any sense that, you know, any unvaccinated player can come to Brooklyn and play, but Kyrie can't play because they're the away team. That just doesn't make sense at all. For me, I still have the Nets as the number one team. For me, if I'm taking a team to come out of the East, very fair points that you had. My whole thing is, you know, KD sprained his MCL. He'll, he should be back. I think he will be back shortly after the All-Star break. Kyrie, I expect the mandate, the, the the vaccine mandate to get lifted and for him to play at least by the time the playoffs come around. And you think about that, like we were saying before, this team was Kevin Durant's foot on the line away from beating the Bucs in game seven and going on. They were dominating that series when they had Kyrie and KD in there, even without Harden. And they were dominating that series before that. And now, you know, you bring in Ben Simmons, who, look, he hasn't worked. He didn't work in the Sixers. And that obviously made sense because Joel Embiid's an interior presence. Obviously, Joel Embiid can shoot from three, but he's a guy that dominates. And yeah, you don't want parks out there. No, exactly. And that's where Ben Simmons can only really operate is in, yeah. the, in, in the paint. So you look at that and Kyrie and KD, those are two of the, be the best shooters in the NBA right now. And the fact is they can operate outside of the outside of the paint. They obviously were really good in the paint and good finishers, but they can operate outside the paint. And the fact is that, you know, you think about it, Kevin Durant is at worst, the second best player in the East. Kevin Durant and Kyrie are the second best duo, I think, in the East when they're both playing behind James oh. Harden and Joel Embiid. That, that's yeah. for me. And then you add in the, the rest of it with, I'd rather take the Nets rest of the roster than the Sixers rest of the roster. And then you look at it as, you know, they didn't like when they, you look at their series against the Bucks, you know, who's guarding Giannis Blake Griffin, who doesn't even touch the floor anymore for this team. Now you have Ben Simmons, who's one of the best defenders in the NBA when he's on the court. So you add in that element. And the fact is Kevin Durant and Kyrie aren't great facilitators of passing the ball. That's where Harden was looked at as, you know, kind of the guy there to be able to facilitate and run an offense there. Ben Simmons, that's what he does. That's his, that's his bread and butter. That's his best part of his offensive game is his passing and facilitating and finding these open guys. So now you're bringing in a guy that, you know, lifts up the defensive side of the ball where we've had all these questions and where, you know, he's taking the, the load off of Kevin Durant, who would normally be the guy marking up, you know, other great wing players. And you're also giving a guy that can facilitate an offense and take some load off of them when it comes to operating that offense. 
And you add in Seth Curry, who I think will work very well with them because you think about, you know, their series last year with Joe Harris where he couldn't hit anything. Seth Curry actually stepped up. He averaged 21 points per game in that Atlanta Hawks series, shooting 60% from three, 60% from the field. So you add in another element there. I just think it works very well. I think this trade was very good for the Nets. I mean, obviously, you when you think about the pure value, giving James Harden to the Sixers and getting back what they got, it's not, it's not clear cut. It's not definitive there but i think for them their whole team i think this works out well enough for them i do th- i do think i think all those are good points you know the, the seth curry thing is a very good point um but on the other hand let's not forget that seth curry is a big reason why they lost in game seven last year to the hawks the 76ers along with ben simmons but kevin herder had an out-of-body experience because he was getting matched up against him on every play and attacking him and that's kind of what happens in the playoffs so i think both of these guys simmons and curry you can talk yourself into it by being very optimistic, but you can also look at what happened in the playoffs and realize that these guys are both severely flawed players. So you could go either way. Gun to my head, I'll probably still take the Bucs. I know they haven't been amazing this year, but I think um, I think once you win a title, you sort of get a pass to you know, maybe take the regular season a bit less seriously, take the foot off the pedal a little bit. Not quite to the level of like some NBA teams like the Nets, but – a little bit. So I think that I think that they're every bit as good as they've been in the past. And I uh, I would be looking out for them probably number one in the East. But I, I do think it's fair to say that both the Nets and Sixers belong up there, probably above the Bulls and Heat. And I know we're going to get to the Bulls in a little bit, but, you know, it's a star driven league at the end of the day. And I like DeMar DeRozan. I like Zach Levine. I like Jimmy Butler. I like Bam Adebayo. But you know, these guys aren't. It's not as severe as a drop-off as you normally would expect when you consider, you know, the rosters. And maybe that's in part because DeMar DeRozan has taken that step up and yeah, we'll get more to the Bulls in a sec, but yeah, the rest of these teams, whether it's the Nets, whether it's the Sixers, whether it's the Bucks, I still think that given their star power, given the amount of options that they have when all the guys are on the court, when you're thinking about it, I mean, I take six guys on or two guys on each of those teams before I would take, Chris Mill uh, before I would take, you know, Jimmy Butler, probably. I, I think Chris Milton's right up there with, with, uh, with Jimmy Butler right now. Yeah, I think going back to Milwaukee, I might, I might take the Bucks big three. And I know you probably won't, but I might take the Bucks big three over the Nets big three, especially given all the question marks surrounding them. I think that's fair. And I, yeah, probably right now I would, I think big three, but big, the top two, if it's KD and Kyrie, I'm taking them over Giannis and, and Chris Milton. Well, but again, it's like it's like half of Kyrie, and then it's like mentally instable. Ben well, Simmons. I'm just talking about them as players. I, I'm yeah, not, yeah, of course, but I'm not saying like for the rest of this regular season whether unfo- or not. He but can unfortunately, play. it's not 2K. I wonder. I wonder if Kyrie can play in Brooklyn in 2K. <laughs> hey, I'll check. Oh, wait, I don't have the new one, but uh, yeah, yeah that'd be, right, I, don't I, I don't think I don't think that'll be the case. I, I don't. That'd be funny though. That would be so funny. Um, but yeah, like you can't play on blacktop mode because it's probably set in like Rucker Park or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's just so many question marks surrounding these guys, and I think that there are a lot of question marks surrounding the Bucks guys. But I thought they had such a big weight lifted off their shoulders, all three of them, by winning the title. I thought all three, you know, especially Giannis. We all talk about Giannis, but Holiday was struggling at times. People like to rip Middleton, but these guys are you know certified now. They're certified champions and and key contributor to championship teams, and I, I like what they bring, and I think they actually match up pretty well with the Nets if it comes to it. Oh, one more thing. Yes, Ben Simmons is a good defender, but he's a perimeter defender first. Um, so I don't know if he'll be able to deal with Giannis that well. I mean, I, he's still 6'10", and he's got a bigger – and it's as opposed to him, as opposed to Blake Griffin. 
No, but it, but you know, but Blake Griffin's tougher than Ben Simmons. Blake Griffin so, was just trying to get trying to draw charges the entire time. But 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 Blake Griffin is tougher than like Ben Simmons is a like for example, we all think Matisse Tybel is a great defender. We all think Kawhi Leonard's a great defender, but we wouldn't like them up against you know Crime Dwight Howard. So I think I think the fact that Simmons is a good defender, he's a good defender when you put him on like the six four guard that he can smother with his length. He's never really locked up big men. I, I mean, he's done well against LeBron. Well, LeBron's not a big. Okay, but he's like he's the type of body type that you're talking about with Giannis, pretty much. Like Giannis is a little bit taller, but Ben Simmons is also six ten as opposed to LeBron six eight, and and Giannis is what six eleven, seven foot. Yeah. So it's Giannis like, is like seven foot with like a seven six wingspan. I get that. I still I still think that he is a guy that can match up very well against Giannis. When you think about it, really anybody else, like I think he can do as good of a job as Bam Adebayo does, and I think you would think Bam's a very no. ideal matchup for him. I, no. I think so. Those are different guys because Bam is like a, a a big guy. Like like Bam is much stronger than Ben Simmons, and so therefore I like him better as like a post defender for sure. I don't know. I don't. I don't, I, I don't know. We'll see. I guess we'll see. Guy, I guess. Um, for me, it's you know Nets. It's really tough because I think all three teams, the Nets, Sixers, and Bucks, are all very close to each other. And not that the Bucks and the Heat are so far down, but I think there's a clear teardrop there. Uh, like we're talking about, because I would take, you know, besides DeMar DeRozan, there's nobody else I would take over the top two for each of those teams amongst the Heat or the Bulls. So I I'd probably right now I'd go Nets, Sixers, Bucks. But again, it is really close at this point. I think all the teams are very close. I, I don't give any leeway there, but I just think the top two for both these teams, the Nets and the Sixers over the Bucks there is my difference. And then with the Nets, I just like their t- I. I just like KD. I, I just think that KD is the best player in the East. I think that he was showing that last year and that was one year off. And I think given all the noise that we heard around them and now that he's been out for about a month that we're all like, you know, kind of losing some perspective on how good he is, but I'm not concerned about a sprained MCL. I'm not concerned about Kyrie potentially playing later in the season because I do think the mandate's going to be lifted. And I think Ben Simmons, I think Kevin Durant is one of the easiest players to play with on the court. And I think Kyrie will be able to gel with what Ben Simmons does well. Yeah, okay. if all three if all three of those things go well for the Nets, then they'll definitely be a threat. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's head over to uh, to our Knicks. It hasn't been a good season. Yeah. They were fourth in the East last year, and obviously we all saw what happened in that Hawks series and exposed, you know, kind of what every rational fan thought about the Knicks, which is, you know, this team has a ceiling. They're a very nice story and all of that, but they didn't have necessarily the star power to get there. And then they go on, they sign some guys, whether it's Evan Fournier. Um, and now the, you thought, you thought as a Knicks fan and I did, and I find to, I like to think of myself as a rational Knicks fan. You thought you're outside the gutter. You thought you weren't a team that's in the bottom barrel of the East. And that's just where they are now. They are nine games under 512th in the East, three and a half games out of the playoffs and are two and eight in their last 10 games. They ranked bottom third in NBA in points per game, field goal percentage, and assists per game. Is it time to move off of tips? Because we've seen some, you know, we saw Julius Randle fight with a guy on this coaching staff. We've heard now rumblings that uh, uh, William Wesley apparently has been pointing the finger at him, and this team continues to falter. I was at that Knicks-Nets game where they blew a 25-point oh, lead. Oh, wow. It was, was third, painful. It was pa- very painful. I was with two of my Nets friends at the game, so even worse. And now you got to worry about, you know, is he losing the locker room? This was, I think, their third 20-plus point uh, blown lead in the month, which is like the most in like 50 years in the entire NBA. Is it time to move off of Tibbs? Um, 
So I think talking about Julius Randle and Tibbs, I think that they both became victims of their own success this past year, because I think in hindsight and based on what we saw when they played the Hawks in the playoffs and lost in five games, I think you have to acknowledge that they severely overperformed last season. And so now they've sort of become victims of that success in the sense that, yes, the Knicks should be probably five games better than they are right now. They should be around the seven or eight seed rather than whatever they are now, which is like 11 or 12. 12. But, but I think at the same time, they were never the team that was the four seed last year. And, and that's what I mean when I say that they were a victim of their own success. Julius Randle was never a 24, 10 and six on 45, 46 from the field and 41 from three. Like he was never that guy. He happened to be that guy for a 70 game stretch last season, but I think it's become clear that he's actually not that guy. And so you could say, oh, Tibbs' message has become stale and he needs to go. And I think a lot of people are going to say that. You might even say that when I finish talking. But I think I think they just sort of became victims of their own success and they're being held to a standard that was a bit of a flash in the pan or a fluke and they were never that team in hindsight. Well, that's where if this team was around a 7 or an 8 seed, I don't think we necessarily have the question because of, A, how good the East is right now. Like we were, we were talking about the top teams. That's, you know, five really good teams. And then you still have the Celtics. You still have the Hawks, who are another struggling team there. So I think if they were around that 7 or 8 seed, I don't think we'd hear anything. But now this is a team that's outside of the playing tournament that's been blowing these leads. And look, you, when you talk about whether or not you want to move off a of tip, you obviously have to talk about, you know, his past with the Bulls and with the mainly the Timberwolves, where it was another younger team that he had kind of rubbed people the wrong way. And I don't necessarily see it getting as bad as it was with the Timberwolves, but it is something of note that, you know, he hasn't really been able to find that success there outside of the Bulls situation where you were on a, a team with a bunch of really good veterans that were able to work through it. And the young guys were Derek Rose and Jimmy Butler. And as we've seen with Jimmy Butler, he's the type of guy that thrives under a coach like Tom Thibodeau. I, my one thing is, and this is my hesitation with every time anybody talks about like with a coach, should we move off them is who are you bringing in? Now for me, I don't really know who the guys are that you would bring in to be that next coach. It's not really like one of those things. Like in the NFL, if you say, okay, we're bringing in this OC, it's like, okay, we can look there or whatever. I, I don't necessarily know for, for me, the impact that an assistant coach might have on a specific unit. If I can say, Oh, we're bringing this offense like Giants Bar and Brian Dable. I can look at what the, the, the bills offense did mainly because the, the head coach was a D is a defensive coach in Sean McDermott there. I can see what Brian Dable did. And as the orchestrator of that offense with Josh Allen, how he was able to uplift that team and why he'd be a good candidate there. I don't really know that with the NBA. So I think that's one of the main question marks you have to have there. While the success is great with him and Randall, I mean, we saw with the mainly with the Raptors with Dwayne Casey. Dwayne Casey, the year he actually won coach of the year, they fired him. So I don't necessarily like, look, great season last year. But if you think you need to move off him because you think his stuff is getting stale right now, it's not unheard of that a coach that won coach of the year shortly or very recently was moved off of his position. I, I think that's something that, you know, kind of set a precedent there where it, while you see, Tom Thibodeau being like a guy that won coach of the year last year. I don't mean it. I don't think it means that he's so set in stone in his position going forward. So who deserves more blame, Julius Randle or Thibodeau? Jeez, that's tough. That's tough. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I'll i say Thibodeau because I think there's some things there. Like with Julius Randle, it's about 
he had a career year and our expectations for him got too lofty there. With yeah. Thibodeau, I think it's all in all, the team is underperforming. I think Julius Randle has more regressed to what he is, while the team has, as a whole, has regressed to further down than what they should be. I think that's I the also, difference there. I, I also think I also think Julius Randle, so I would watch him play last year and see him hit crazy mid-ranger after crazy mid-ranger. And maybe he's fallen in love with that a bit because now this is a guy who's shooting a career low 42% from the field. And so he had shot poorly from three in the past, but he's still taking five and a half threes a game when he's making them at a 30% clip versus the 41% clip he was making them at last year. I think he's sort of fallen in love with the jumper in the mid ranger. When you look at these numbers, because he used to be a guy who would get to the hoop and attack. And I don't really see him as that guy as much anymore. I just, you listen to some Knicks fans and they were talking about it, how they liked him better than Carmelo. Maybe not necessarily that he was better, but I just can't believe it because I watch this guy play and I'm like, yeah, he's making these shots right now, but I don't think this is very replicable over a long period of time. And I think you sort of see that this year, obviously. I, I just, I think a lot of Knicks fans last year were getting really, really confident. And I just thought it was misplaced the entire time. And you hate to be that guy, but you saw what happened in the playoffs and now you see what happens this year. And I can't say I'm absolutely shocked. No, I'm not shocked that they regressed. I mean, if anybody thought they were going to replicate what they were doing there, they were just, they're kidding themselves. If you think, if you thought what you saw after that Atlanta series and then what they, the moves they made bringing in Evan Fournier, you know, re-signing Derek Rose, bringing in Kemba Walker, if you thought this team was going to be, you know, at the same level, then I think you were just kidding yourself and you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. The one tough part about this team, and this was when I was at that Nets game, when they were blowing the lead, it was very, very evident. I know like Knicks fans have seen this. It's the fact that they don't have a true point guard. And whether it's Kemba Walker, whether it's Emmanuel Quickly, these are guys that are not traditional point guards. These are not guys that are orchestrating the offense. That's where Derrick Rose was so key in that in that Atlanta Hawks series and was the second or the best player on the Knicks team that entire series. He's been out for most of the season. But when you try and like Thibodeau, and this is where, you know, this is a little bit on him. He's throwing Alec Burks out there to orchestrate the offense. And it's like, you're telling me this is our best option to orchestrate well, an offense and run an offense out there? The, the, you know, a, co- a couple things. So first of all, the Knicks had this approach of we're going to sign a bunch of different guys to more mid-level deals and we're going to see how it goes. And that's a great idea in principle until you sort of look up and you have Evan Fournier, who's not good, and, and a bunch of these other guys who are just very run of the mill. Also, this is a problem that I have with NBA fans in general. And I'll bring up Cam Thomas, who everyone was going nuts over after the Knicks game, um, that Knicks-Nets game. He had 21 points on 21 shots. And and the reason I bring this up, a lot of these Knicks fans, again, it's like, oh, Emmanuel quickly is so good. He's so good. He shot 40% from the field last year. And he's shooting 37% this year. So I just it just really bothers me when people freak out to these late first-round picks who – can put up stats, but it's not very efficient. And people believe that they're these like players that are going to continually progress upward over time. And that's just not reality. They, they eventually have to fit into a role on a team where they can't just take shots as they please. Quickly shoots 37% from the field, man. That is so bad. Like I just players like that. It really frustrates me because I feel like they're so overvalued. You, know, you can find a guard off the street who's playing in the G league that, that can put up points on a crappy team and shoot, shoot it in, inefficiently. 
it's all about, you know, how you come in. I mean, if Kevin Knox is doing that, and I, I'm sure he was doing that at some point, everybody's ripping him because he was the seventh overall pick as opposed to a guy that you had in the late in the late 20 or in the late round uh, in the early 20s and was a guy that you weren't expecting to do anything. You were expecting him to be a guy that's in the G League and maybe you'll see him at some point. And that's where, you know, maybe Maxi, like I'll relate it to, you know, Sixers and Tyrese Maxi, who Maxi's a little bit better, I think, than quickly at this point. But it's another guy where, you know, they weren't they weren't willing to trade him, put him in the trade for Harden. And and it's like, really, this is going to be the difference in holding you up between getting James Harden and not getting James Harden. Yeah. Another another Sixers example is when they trade Landry Shamit for Tobias Harris. And a lot of Sixers fans were like, oh, you can't trade Landry Shamit. He's going to be amazing because he was a late first who had a solid rookie year. Well, he's probably gotten worse since then. And it's just another classic example of Kyle Kuzma. Right. He had a good rookie year. I know he's not a guard, but the point kind of stands because he's a bit of an inefficient chucker. And and it's the same thing where, yeah, these guys shoot 40, 42 percent their rookie year. And you're like, oh, they're just going to continue on an upward trajectory and get better and better and better. And that's just not how it works. You know, life isn't 2K where where they go, you know, plus two, plus three. They're overall every offseason until they turn 30. It's just not reality. Yeah. So to attend this off, you know, I I don't I think they need to move off them. I think they need some new life in there. And whether that means moving off of as well with Julius Randle and Evan Fournier, I don't knock them for re-signing Randle to the contract. I don't think you can let like, I don't think you can let the asset of Julius Randle leave the building. I think you need to sign him because at worst you can just trade him and get some pieces back with him, whether it's draft capital, because at some point somebody's going to want to trade him because it's not like his contract. It's not like he's getting paid forty million dollars a year. And then with the Fournier stuff, yeah, I think the mid-level, the mid or the more middle-tier contracts, I think makes it allows for them to be more flexible to pair with a Julius Randle if you wanted to go out and trade for somebody that was of the upper echelon, like a superstar out there um, with some draft capital. So I think the, I think the premise of building this team was, was right there. I don't think they gel well. I don't think the players are playing well. And I don't think the coach really fits right now with what they're, what they need to do. Yeah. So long story short, the Knicks are back to me in the Knicks. So if you're a Knicks hater, you rejoice. <laughs> Our boy John is, uh, I'm sure, loving it. I know. And he says the craziest stuff. He's like, Knicks, Knicks fans love talking about Nets fans. I'm like, are you delusional? You're the one it's, who loves talking about us. He's Crazy. the one. I, I don't care about the Nets outside of the fact when we have to talk about whether or not they're going to win the title. They can win the title. I don't talk about the Nets as opposed to like, what the Nets are doing. I don't give a shit besides and watching it, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. It's also been very enjoyable to see. Knicks or Nets and Sixers fans totally do a 180 on everything that they had said respectively about Ben Simmons and Harden. (laughs) I haven't seen much of it. My, most of my, my Nets friends, just one of my Nets friends hates Ben Simmons and hated him. And obviously now hates James Harden because of what James Harden did. So I haven't seen the flip-flop, but I'm sure, I'm sure they're backtracking all of that. Just to, you know, save, save some face there. Because everybody, and you, you were doing this a little bit when you were talking about the Nets, everybody assumes the best. Oh, Kyrie's going to be able to play. Now that's a bit of a different conversation, but Ben Simmons is going to make a full recovery and he's going to fit in perfectly. And he's going to be an off the ball guy who, who does exactly what he needs to do. And it's going to be perfect. It's going to gel perfectly. And it's just not reality that, Oh, this, like you think you brought up Tyrese Maxey. I guarantee he regresses significantly with Harden on the team. I guarantee it because it's just one of these things that it just to, you know, one plus one does not automatically equal two in the NBA. It equals one and a half most of the time. 
And I think that's where a lot of fans, again, really get mixed up when they just assume the best there. And there's nothing wrong with being excited, but it's not seated in reality oftentimes. No, that's a very fair point. And I think that is something that when you are thinking about the outlook of these teams, but being cautiously optimistic, when it comes to the Nets, for me, it was mainly seeing Ben Simmons and what Blake Griffin did and how key Blake Griffin was for them last year. And I have to assume Ben Simmons is significantly better than him because Blake Griffin can't even get on the floor this year. And this but is like, Blake- boy, this is eight, nine months later. But even Blake Griffin was shooting threes, right? So he wasn't, it's not like he was always in the post on offense. So, so that's another thing, you know, it's not like, like teams play five out for a reason. A lot of the times it's not like, Oh, perfect. We needed someone to go stand in the paint and do nothing. So, you know, we'll see how it works. No, I I think it'll be very exciting. I think for me, what gets me excited if I'm a Nets fan is the idea of this five man lineup, Kyrie, Kevin Durant, Joe Harris, Seth Curry, and Ben Simmons. I think that's yeah. very exciting to see. Five out, five out offense, and you completely space out the floor besides, obviously, Ben Simmons there. But, you know, outside of Kyrie and KD, I, I don't necessarily see Seth Curry and, and Joe Harris going towards the middle that often. I think that would cause a lot of problems. Okay. One of the surprises of the entire NBA this season has been the Chicago Bulls and DeMar DeRozan, who has vaulted himself into the MVP conversation and one of the guys that can definitely take home the title. Uh, but the Bulls right now sit tied for first with the Heat in at the top of the East. They rank fourth in offensive rating. I think right now, whether what what do you think? Are they a legit contender to not only win? Uh, I get, let's start off with the East. Do you think they're a legit contender to win the East? Um, a legit contender to win the East, yes, in the sense that Miami Heat won the East a few years back because you never know what might happen. But as far as actually winning the title, no. Um, so there's two there's two ways to argue this. Here's the Pro Bulls argument. They've actually been a bit unfortunate with their injury luck. So Lonzo's missed 25-odd games. Caruso's missed 30 games. Patrick Williams has hardly played all year, and now there's rumors that he might actually be able to come back. So it's um, that's the pro-Bulls argument where you could say, these guys have actually been injured, and now they're going to come back, and maybe Vucevic will get better as he continues to fit in where he's not sort of the guy like he was in Orlando. But the anti-Bulls argument is the reality that if you don't have one of like five guys, you can't really win the title. Um, And so that kind of disqualifies them. I like DeMar DeRozan. I like Zach Levine, but they're leagues below guys like Durant and and Giannis. And that's kind of what you need to win the title. Well, that's where this team becomes so difficult because of the fact that, you know, I agree with you. That's normally how I think about with when it comes to title contenders, where your best player is, because in the end, that is how you'll go as far as your best player carries you. Right. And we've seen that time and time again, when it was that heat and that's in that year in the bubble, Jimmy Butler was carrying them and he was playing like a top 10 player. DeMar DeRozan right now is playing like a top five, top seven player right now. And that's why this team has continued to stay strong. And despite the fact that they've had that bad injury luck and Vucevic not being really the guy that he was with the Orlando magic, that's where it, it kind of, it's a tough conversation to have. If DeMar DeRozan obviously stays on this trajectory, I don't necessarily see them winning the title, but I think this is a team that can definitely win the East. But there there still becomes that whole thing of, you know, after DeMar DeRozan, because you have to think about it. They go up against, you know, any of the other top three or four teams. DeMar DeRozan's, you know, probably the worst of the top, you know, if they play the Sixers, he's the third best player. If they play the Nets, he's the third best player. If he plays the Bucks, he's probably the, the second or third best player. I don't know how, depending on how you think Chris Middleton is compared to him. When you go against the Heat, it's like 1A, 1B with him and Jimmy Butler. I think they're on a similar tier there. So 
when it comes down to that, that is tough for me to take them consistently over them when, you know, you're probably going to have to play at least two of these teams when it comes to, when it comes to playoff time, that's where it becomes a little tough for me to see them actually take that leap up, whether or not, you know, maybe Lonzo comes back and he's able to, you know, jumpstart this offense a little bit more, whether it's like unlocking Vucevic in the pick and roll game. I don't know. You're going to need to get those other guys involved because Zach Levine is not the guy that's on that same level as a Chris Milton Kyrie or Embiid slash Harden, whoever the second best guy is on that, whoever you want to say is the second best guy on that team. You need that. You need other guys to step up when you have these other star superstar powers on the other top teams in the East. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the Bulls stats, they are a fun team. DeRozan, five rebounds, five assists. Lonzo, five rebounds, five assists. Levine, four and a half, four and a half. Kobe White, three and three. Caruso, four and four. Uh, Ayo Dosunmu. Apologies if I butchered that one. <laughs> Ayo Dosunmu. Yeah, three and three. So it's like they're a very well-balanced team. And I do enjoy watching that. But at the same time, well-balanced teams, a la the Utah Jazz in years past, end up getting bounced. And I feel the same way about the Grizzlies this year. You know, I love John Morant. Sure, everyone does. But they're probably going to get bounced. You know, they're a three-seed right now. But I don't think anyone takes them seriously. I take the Bulls a little more seriously than I take the Grizzlies because of what DeRozan can do in a late-game situation, as well as Levine. I mean, as far as second banana goes, he's definitely one of the better ones in the league. But the reality is, I just, I don't, I don't, they're both solid B options, DeRozan, Levine. And I don't think either of them are a true A, even in spite of how good DeRozan's been this year. Yeah. Like DeRozan's playing like a 1B right now. But I, to say, to expect that going forward for through, for however long, like however long they're still in the season, I think that's a tough ass to have. I mean, right now he is absolutely destroying it, obviously. And if he continues it on, that's a different story. But to project that out when we're sitting here February 21st for, you know, May or June, that, that's tough to see him continue on this path when we haven't seen that throughout his entire career for him to reach these levels and sustain that. This isn't like, you know, LeBron. This isn't Kevin Durant. This isn't like a guy that has a proven track record there of continuing out this sustained success and excellence there to carry a team to no, that, if anything, to that, he, forward, to that he's uh, actually He's actually somewhat of a known playoff choker, if we're being honest. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I, we've had these discussions about that, uh, about that Toronto's rap, the Toronto Raptors teams. Uh, when, you know, when he would choke there, how he was on the bench, how he got taken out in that little bit when they actually played against the Heat or against the uh, the Cavs and they swept them. So, no, that's definitely another wrinkle to it all when you're considering the scene because obviously there's guys that perform in the regular season that don't perform in the playoffs. A la, you were talking about the, the Utah Jazz, Rudy Gobert. It's somebody that gets exposed a little bit in the playoffs. Whether or not DeMar DeRozan, that happens for him, to be seen, but it is something that when we're sitting here, again, February 21st recording this, I can't say that they're a legitimate contender for me to consider them as a team that can win the title. They are a team that I think can, that can contend to win the East. That's fair. No, I think it's very fair. Okay. MVP race. We got a few guys to discuss. Now I'm looking at DeMar's not in the top five, but I'm going to rattle off the top five right now. Joel Embiid, these are according to DraftKings. Joel Embiid plus 130, Nikola Jokic plus 290, Giannis plus 400, Steph plus 850, and Ja plus 1100. Where, where are you leaning right now? Who do you think it is right now? And then who do you think is going to win it? I think if the season ended today, it's Embiid. But that's exactly why I don't really like him, because I think the James Harden thing is going to significantly change. And the thing that could help his case is the fact that they're sort of on the fringe right now of how good you can actually be to an MVP. You generally need to be a top three seed. So if he can write the ship on that, but 
I like Jokic a little bit more in the sense that he's not having someone come back. He really is doing it by himself. You got to be worried if you're an Embiid guy that he's going to dip by five points a game when Harden comes in. And, and that'll probably hurt his season averages by two or three points a game. And um, that could really be damaging. Yeah, now, I, I, feel, I feel the same way. Yeah, and, and so and, and so I think I think him at plus thirty, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, Jokic at plus two ninety, yeah, I like it. The problem is he might not win enough games, and therefore by default, you kind of got to look at Giannis plus four hundred as good value. I think it's solid. I mean, right now, yeah, I I agree hundred percent with what you were saying with Embiid. I think right now I'd give it to him in part because, and mainly in part because, yes, him and Jokic have like similar stats when it comes to offensively. Obviously, defensively, you have to look at Embiid in just a different stratosphere than, than Jokic there, mm. and I think that's what separates them. But when you have Harden coming in, a guy that's ball dominant and all of this, and Joel Embiid's a guy that needs the ball in his hands to be at his best, it really find, I find it hard to believe that he'll be able to sustain the numbers that he has right now. And while it's, you know, majority, 54 games right now, and they got 28 the rest of the way, majority of the season's done. It's not like it's so far of a gap that Nicole Jokic or Giannis or even a Steph could, you know, pole vault into there. So for me, projecting forward, I got I'm going Jokic. I still think even though they are the six, I mean, we saw Westbrook carry his team to the last seed in the in the uh, in the West and, you know, win the uh, win the MVP title a few years ago when he had the triple double the year after KD left. So I don't necessarily see they need to be a top three seed. Obviously, that's more of the formula that you normally see. But I think this is a, a unique circumstance where you have no Jamal Murray all season, where Michael Porter Jr. gets injured in the beginning part of the season. And you still carry this team. And this is a guy that, you know, all the narrative, then it's the back-to-back stuff where, you know, this is one of the best passing big men. He has already shown the ability to win MVP. He's still that dominant guy. I think at some point the narrative is going to take over that this guy is doing it all by himself compared to these other guys, whether it's Giannis, whether it's Embiid, whether it's Steph, he's doing it all by himself comparably to these other guys. And I think that's the difference there because he still has the numbers to back it up. Yeah. You know, on that topic and so the Nuggets are a team that I actually really sort of view as a sleeper, but I mean, Murray's, Got to have torn that ACL at least like 14 months ago at this point. Yeah, he's, he, he could. I think the news is that he might be able to return or he's, they're hoping he returns, I think, late March, maybe early April. But it's And so it's, it's, it's getting to the point where I'm starting to question it because I feel that a torn ACL used to mean a year, a year plus, sort of like earlier in our lives. But the conversation has kind of changed that you can come back in six months, eight months. And we're on month like 14 and where is this guy? It's for me, it's kind of a question of, is this guy ever going to be the same? Cause he's been out for so long. I'm trying to look at exactly when exactly he, te- he tore it. I have to think it's around a year, I think in March or April. Oh uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I was thinking more like, like January. I don't I think could so. be wrong. I, I, yeah. I don't think so, but I also think that they're going to be a little bit like, I think it's just the way the NBA is because you know, the regular, and this is why we didn't touch much on the NBA early on in the season. Cause it's like, yeah, they don't, they don't necessarily take it the most seriously early on. It's not the, the, it's not the, it's not like the NFL where every week matters. It's not like the NBA, not every game necessarily matters as much. April, 2021 bio. So yeah. you're right. So I think they're just being a little bit more cautious with him. I think working him back and making sure that he's ready by, you know, the playoffs and more at full strength as opposed to rushing him back for, you know, in a, in a sport that the regular season isn't the forefront focus for no, most of these teams. You, Honestly, you bring him back mid-March, early April, that, that, that gives him the, the, the opportunity to play about 10 games. 
and, mm. and like get back into the flow before the playoffs, which is probably all you need. I, I can't speak to that. Just, you know, never torn an ACL. I, I play in NBA well, games. You all know, you every need once in the sense that like, look, you don't want to bring this guy in dry, you know, for the playoffs. That never works. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to bring him in before he's ready. So I'm just saying you get him the chance to play 10 to 15 games. I'm not saying he's going to be back at 100%, but gives him the opportunity to play some games, get a little confidence going before the playoffs. That's all I'm saying. No, that's very fair. And I, this was a team that when you thought about it with Michael Porter Jr., hopefully, like before the season, if you're like, okay, if Jamal Murray comes back, this is a team that you can make the late season push. I think when you look at it now with Michael Porter Jr., as well as him working them way, their way back from pretty, you know, Jamal Murray, a very, very serious injury. And then Michael Porter Jr., another reoccurring injury with his back. I think mm-hmm. it's another thing that I, I can't I can't feel comfortable with them, especially when you think about it. They're sitting at the six seed right now. And, you know, if they match up against the Grizzlies, I like that. But if if not, if they have to play like a legit team, I, I find that a little bit worrisome, especially if they have to play like the Utah Jazz, who they've played, you know, for years. But now they don't have to deal with these bad, bad injuries. You do. I find that very difficult. With, the, with Jokic, you know, even if you get a Porter Jr. or a Murray back, I still don't think it, it limits him the same way, you know, Harden going to the Sixers will be there. So it's not so much as a worry there. So that's where I still like the plus 290 there. Well, so much of Jokic's game is predicated on other people anyway because he's such an assist machine. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I, I think right now you, you like Giannis, I think, a little bit more than I do when it comes to the whole MVP odds. I still think he has a very strong case there. I just think when you think about it all, they haven't had to deal with the injuries. He's still been amazing, but I think the narrative around that is going to be so much more so. And that's where it would have helped Embiid because they're better in the East in a a stronger conference. And he had to deal with no Ben Simmons at all throughout the entire season. Yeah. If anything, honestly, Embiid has the better narrative plus Jokic won last year. So that is sort of what aids him. The question is going to be how much does James Harden take away from him in these last two months? Yeah, and I expect that. And if you know James Harden, if you've watched him enough, you, you, you know it's going to be a bunch. You know it's yeah. going to be a bunch. The guy wanted to get away from a free-flowing offense like the Brooklyn Nets to a more isolated, iso-heavy. And there's no way that Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers aren't going to uh, make him accustomed to that because they know that's the best way to find success is to get him the ball in his hands as much as possible. And obviously work Embiid in there. It's not like Embiid's going to become this 18-point-per-game guy but as opposed to the, you know, the 28 or 29 that he's at right now, um, he'll go to maybe like a 24, 25. And I think that's just the difference there because Jokic will have the 20, whatever, and 10 assists and seven, like whatever. He'll have his numbers still the same. And I think that's where it takes over the top. Yep. Okay. Well, that's going to do it for us today. We'll be back next Monday to discuss some more NBA. So maybe some more NFL. We'll see what the news brings us. Uh, but that's it for us today. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>